Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. Stuntman Gary Kent showed up on Spawn Ranch in early August 1969 to do some saddle falls on a cheap western called Lash of Lust. By this point, Charles Manson and his family, now numbering about three dozen followers, had been camped out on the ranch, in its caves and amidst its decaying Old West movie sets, for about a year. By this point... In Gary Kent's eyes, Charlie himself was worlds away from the beatific shirtless hunk of Catherine Scherer's recollections in our last episode. Charlie Manson's handshake felt like a dead trout and he wouldn't look me in the eye, Kent would later write. And yet, the stuntman felt sorry for the guru, who was sorely in need of a bath and a fresh set of clothes. He looked, Kent would write, as lethal as a pill bug. If Kent was scared of anyone, it was Manson's deputy, Tex Watson, who sauntered around the movie set twirling a six-shooter and trying to impress the ladies on the crew. As they were rapping for the afternoon, Kent heard gunshots off in the distance, and one of the regulars on the ranch told him that was Tex, that his guns were real and loaded with live bullets. The next day, at lunchtime, The stuntman picked up his box lunch and settled into a grassy spot a little ways away from the picnic tables where the rest of the crew was eating. Out of the bushes came a girl, dressed in ratty gingham, her dirty hair trailing down to her waist. She flirted with him, pretended to be impressed that he was working on the movie, and asked if she could have the leftovers of his lunch. She was so pathetic, so obviously genuinely hungry, that Gary Kent handed the whole thing over to her. That starving girl was Patricia Krenwinkel. Gary Kent didn't know it, but within a week, Tex and Patricia, at dirty little Charles Manson's bequest, would play a part in murdering at least seven people. Charlie and the family had occasionally camped out at Spawn Ranch throughout the summer of 1968, But with the eviction from Dennis Wilson's house, they fully moved in. Spawn Ranch was 28 miles due north of Wilson's Pacific Palisades mansion, straight up Topanga Canyon Road into the flatlands of the San Fernando Valley, and all the way north into Chatsworth, at almost the base of the Santa Susana Mountains, a faded sign read, Movie Ranch. Behind the sign was a massive plot of land, named for its octogenarian proprietor, home to 16 horses, 
and a rickety Old West movie set where D-list odors still sometimes filmed. And it was here that Charlie Manson's family coalesced and transformed from a loose gang of slightly weird, but not really suspiciously weird, acid-gobbling free-love hippies into an army ready to fight an apocalyptic battle which they believed was imminent thanks to the secret messages they thought they heard in the Beatles' White Album. If Charles Manson's story is ultimately one of fame-crazed manifest destiny gone horribly wrong, then it makes perfect sense that much of the pivotal action in his story would take place in a literal ghost town that had been built to contain and support the myths of cowboys, Hollywood's oldest icons of righteous rebellion, part of a series of outlaw tropes in the process of resurrection during Manson's era, thanks to new Hollywood films like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider, not to mention Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Little Big Man and much more. Join us, won't you? As we follow the Manson family to Spawn Ranch and down a rabbit hole with the Beatles. The land Spawn Ranch occupied had been used as a filming location for westerns as far back as the silent era. It had originally belonged to William S. Hart, a major silent film cowboy star who was obsessed with making realistic westerns. He collected Old West memorabilia, such as the guns that once belonged to Billy the Kid, and labored to work these real artifacts into the artifice of movie making. In 1947, the land was bought by a couple named Lee and Ruth McReynolds, who built a western town on the property, complete with a trading post, saloon, and jail. Reports vary on the timing, but at some point within the next few years, the McReynolds sold the ranch to George Spawn, who had previously built a business in North Hollywood, providing ponies for birthday parties and renting livestock and western props to film productions. Spawn moved into the Chatsworth Ranch and rented out the sets to TV productions like The Lone Ranger and Bonanza. George Spawn brought his trade with him to Chatsworth, and he was joined by a new partner, dancer, dog trainer, and circus performer Ruby Pearl, but he left everything else behind. He had been a dairy farmer and a carpenter. While living in Pennsylvania, he had married his housekeeper and with her fathered ten kids, all of whom George insisted be named after his horses. Spawn's family didn't come with him to his new ranch. Most of his children were grown, and either he had had enough of his wife or vice versa. Spawn was in his mid-sixties when he bought the ranch. When Manson and his bevy of young women showed up in 1968, Spawn was 80 and nearly blind, and while Ruby still worked for him, any personal relationship they had once had had dissipated, and Ruby now went home to her own place at the end of every workday. The sets on the ranch had fallen into disrepair, the wood rotting out, and while the occasional low-budget Western movie or TV show set up shop there... Spawn was mostly eking out a living renting horses for the day to hikers and tourists, including celebrities who wanted a taste of the Old West, such as Marvin Gaye and Jerry Garcia. Though Spawn had hired a few ranch hands to help serve the customers who came around, he was otherwise isolated at the end of the world. He was lonely and a little bit out of it, 
And his land was so large, encompassing hundreds of acres of rolling hills, sprinkled with creeks and caves, shacks and sets with false fronts, that he was unable to be on top of everything that was going on. By some reports, the Manson family had already started moving into Spawn Ranch before George Spawn even really knew they were there. It was easy to set up camp in the caves at the far reaches of the property, and even within the makeshift structures that were no longer getting much use as movie sets. But at some point, one of the girls came floating around George's house, sweet-talked her way inside, and then asked the old man if she and her friends could camp out on his land for a while. Their car broke down, she said, and they promised to be really, really nice. Spawn agreed, reluctantly at first, although he came to like the sounds of the girls laughing and singing. Eventually, Charlie came around and worked out a deal with Spawn. His group could stay on Spawn's land, free of charge, and in exchange they would perform maintenance work around the property, helping out the ranch hands and keeping everything clean. Spawn came to like Charlie, too. The guru would come and sit with the old man and tell him all about his vision of the world, which Spawn didn't totally understand, but he was happy for the company. Manson's family made good on Charlie's promises. Spawn noticed that once the family moved in, work seemed to get done almost as if by magic, without him even having to ask. And then Charlie assigned one of his girls, Lynn Frome, to be George Spawn's personal servant. She moved into his little house, which she kept tidy, and cooked and served his meals, and enthusiastically seduced him. It was George Spawn who gave Lynn the nickname Squeaky, in reference to the exaggerated squeals she made when he touched her. Squeaky Frome, who would later go to prison after the Manson murders for attempting to assassinate President Gerald Ford, now became the Manson family equivalent of a secret agent. George Spawn's genuine affection for her and legitimate need for companionship allowed her to manipulate him into giving the family all but free reign over his land. Slowly, Squeaky started working on trying to convince the old man to leave her the ranch in his will. By now, the Manson family numbered about 35 followers. To house them all... Charlie asked Tex Watson to build out some of the false fronts on the ranch into four-walled structures with roof and floors. The family continued their acid-fueled rituals in the afternoons and evenings, often using the movie set saloon as an ad hoc chapel for Charlie's sermons. Manson would place tabs of acid in each follower's mouth to make sure they took the dose he wanted them to take. Charlie would cycle through the basics of his philosophy— He had to, to indoctrinate the new members who kept streaming in, but he had added a lot of new tenets. Anti-Semitism started popping up, which was sort of incongruous with Charlie's simultaneous claim that he was either Jesus or maybe somehow related to Jesus. He would sermonize his explanations for why he confiscated everything a new member brought with them to the ranch, including money, of course, but also eyeglasses, family photos, and books. And the gathering started taking on a more performative quality, too. Manson would encourage the group to play childish games of make-believe, with the boys acting out narratives as cowboys or pirates, and the girls pretending to be elves or fairies. Charlie managed to convince several of the girls, under the influence of LSD, 
that at some point on their path to enlightenment, if they stayed loyal to him, they would actually sprout wings. The followers didn't recognize that Charlie was manipulating them. In fact, they felt more indebted to Charlie than ever. Catherine Cher, the girl who observed Charlie in his kimono in our last episode, on her first night at Spawn Ranch, walked into the saloon and saw a Manson family member lying on his stomach on the stage, weeping and thanking Charlie for setting him free. Charlie now had his hair down, and Catherine couldn't believe how much he looked like Jesus. And he was soothing his crying child. That's all right, brother. You can give it all to me. Just let it go and be free. As Catherine put it, Charlie made her his woman that night. And pretty soon, she had been rechristened Gypsy and was considered the top-ranking woman in the Manson family hierarchy. If it was Manson family business as usual by night, by day, they were often working with Spawn's permanent ranch hands, which included Juan Flynn, a Panamanian Vietnam vet who worked for a piddling $2.50 a week because he genuinely loved the ranch and its horses. Then there was Donald Shea, nicknamed Shorty, a would-be movie stuntman, and a dim-witted kid named Steve Grogan. Flynn and Shea were instantly suspicious of Charlie and his crew, but Grogan was entranced by the family, and he soon became a full-fledged member, christened Scramblehead, which was ultimately scrambled into the nickname Clem. Charlie was happy to have his followers working hard, but he didn't want them to get too used to taking orders from Juan Flynn, and thus Charlie would intentionally undermine the head ranch hand's authority. Early in their time on the ranch, Flynn got fed up with Manson and charged at the much smaller guru. Before Flynn could tackle him, Manson pulled out his matches, lit one, and held it to his arm, burning his own flesh. Flynn was taken aback, and when Manson said, You know, brother, there is no such thing as pain. Flynn backed off in bewilderment. Juan Flynn and Shorty Shea started campaigning against Manson with Spawn. Shea, in particular, was trying to convince the old man to sell his land to a big developer. Shorty was constantly trying to convince Spawn that even if they built out and restored some of the crumbling structures on the ranch, Manson's family were themselves an eyesore, which would bring the value of the property down. Squeaky would eavesdrop on Spawn's conversations, and she reported back to Charlie that Shorty seemed determined to throw the family off the ranch. Charlie thought of Shorty as a threat, even though he didn't really consider Spawn Ranch to be a permanent home. Always paranoid that proximity to Los Angeles increased the possibility that his followers, particularly the girls, could run away, he wanted to relocate his family to Death Valley, where their lives would literally be in his hands. But Charlie was still, above all else, interested in his own stardom, and he was afraid to be too far away from the city for the sake of his own music career. Manson experimented with moving parts of the family to different locations, 
At least two went to England to spread Manson's teachings and also to study Scientology. Some went to Barker Ranch, a desolate desert outpost owned by the grandmother of one of Manson's followers, while others started crashing at a log cabin in Laurel Canyon, which had previously been owned by another cowboy star, Tom Mix, and which would later belong to Frank Zappa. And then there was a house in the neighborhood of Canoga Park, a big yellow stucco thing, which Manson, of course, nicknamed the Yellow Submarine. Charlie left Spawn Ranch for a while to live in this house with some girls and one of Charlie's old prison pals, a master forger who went by the name Bill Vance, and joined the family. Vance was friends with one of their neighbors, a Native American gal who sometimes worked at Spawn Ranch by the name of Wendy Buckley. Wendy had a truck which she would sometimes let Bill borrow. She trusted him enough that she let him have her second set of keys. One day, Wendy was driving in the truck, and she was pulled over. The cop told her that they were investigating a number of robberies, and the license plate of her truck matched that of a truck seen at the scene of one of the crimes. Wendy had an alibi, she had been at work, so the cop let her go. But she figured out that Bill was probably involved somehow, so she confronted him about it and confiscated the second set of keys to the truck. A few hours later, Charlie came by Wendy's house and asked to use the truck. When she refused, Charlie started beating her. She managed to reach for a gun that she kept in the house for protection, but she wasn't able to get the safety off, and Charlie got away unscathed. According to Wendy, when Shorty Shea found out about this, he was livid. He had never liked Manson, and now here was clear evidence that the guy was no good. According to Wendy, Shorty marched over to the Yellow Submarine house and beat the crap out of Charlie Manson to retaliate for what he did to Wendy. This is probably true. I don't think Wendy has any reason to lie about it, and as she has noted, it would definitely explain why Manson and Shay's relationship became so heated that Shorty would eventually suffer the consequences. But the timing doesn't totally make sense. Because really soon after this would have happened, Charlie decided to move his entire family back to Spawn Ranch, where Shorty Shea still worked, and which he was still agitating George Spawn to sell. Actually, maybe it does make sense. Maybe it was a power move on Charlie's part. And or maybe he was totally insane. He'd probably have to be. Because by February 1969... Charlie had decided that George Spawn's ranch was the perfect staging ground for the next phase in his family's mission, a project he was calling Helter Skelter, in deference to what Manson claimed was the prophecy-packed text through which he derived his orders, the new Beatles record, The White Album. The White Album was written primarily in the spring of 1968, beginning when the band spent time in India at a transcendental meditation clinic presided over by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and also attended by Mia Farrow, the singer Donovan, and Mike Love, Dennis Wilson's fellow beach boy. It was the first Beatles record that betrayed the group's growing infighting. Its use of overdubs was directly related to the fact that most of the Beatles had gotten to the point where they didn't want to be in the room with one another, especially after John Lennon declared that where he went, Yoko Ono went too. It also had to be released as a double album, 
because the band couldn't agree on an edited track listing. Pop music was the aspect of outside culture which Manson regulated the least. His family members were allowed to listen to the radio in cars, so they were subjected to all the hits of the day. Charlie himself liked The Doors, and as we heard last week, he loved the moody blues. But there was only one band that he really took seriously, and that was The Beatles. When the White Album was released in November 1968, Charlie got his hands on the vinyl right away and started working it into his evening preaching sessions. He believed, or at least he told the family that he believed, that the Beatles had channeled Manson's own teachings and bottled them into this masterpiece of pop music for the masses. This declaration accomplished two things. It explained why Manson himself had yet to land a recording contract for his own message music, although he left the door open for that by telling the family that the Beatles clearly expected him to make his own answer record. And it made Charlie's theories about the near future and the family's missions seem legitimate. After all, if the Beatles were talking about the same things, how could they be totally made up and insane? Charlie preached that the whole of the album contained the message that the Beatles were looking for a spiritual savior. But he asked his followers to concentrate particularly on a handful of songs, in which he insisted the Beatles had inserted messages just for them, coded just enough so that the straight world wouldn't understand. Those songs, Charlie said, made it clear that the spiritual savior the Beatles were talking about was Charles Manson himself. It wasn't hard to convince the family that the song Sexy Sadie was written in reference to family member Susan Atkins, who Manson had nicknamed Sadie over a year earlier, and who was, well, very sexy. She was the Manson girl who had been a stripper, who had danced topless in a cabaret organized by satanic church leader Anton LaVey, and whose joyful willingness to do pretty much any sexual act with anybody had helped Manson make his case that the sexual slavery he essentially held his women in was in fact part of their revolutionary mission. When the Manson family heard these lyrics, which seemed to reference their Sadie, It didn't seem like such a big leap that the Beatles were using the whole of this double album to talk to the family, and that made it easier for the family to swallow some of Charlie's nuttier lyric readings. Peggy's was a song evidently about class struggle, but Charlie interpreted it personally. The Manson family were the little piggies crawling in the dirt, or in their case, diving into dumpsters for food while the big piggies wore clean white shirts and lived decadently. It was all about how rich people had too much, and in order to balance the scales, Rocky Raccoon was, Charlie said, about coons, as in black people, 
and Paul McCartney's lyric about Rocky's revival clearly referenced the revolution black men would someday soon mount against whites. Likewise, Blackbird, Manson said, was about how, as Charlie himself had been saying for years, the blacks had been waiting for their moment to rise up and destroy white people. The Beatles were telling the entire black race, Manson said, that their time was nigh. And if they were unsure how to do it, Charlie said, that's what happiness is a warm gun was for to tell black men to pick up guns and use them to kill white men. Two songs, Charlie said, Honey Pie and Revolution One, included the Beatles' invitations to Manson to create his own album, in which he could tell the Beatles how to survive all they had prophesized. Charlie also interpreted Honey Pie as the Beatles' coded demand that Charlie bring the Manson family across the Atlantic to England because they were too lazy to come to Los Angeles, or Hollywood as they put it in the song, to meet him. Oh, Honey Pie, you are driving me frantic Sail across the Atlantic to be where you belong This song inspired the Manson family to desperately try to get in touch with the Beatles over the next few months to arrange a rendezvous. They never got any kind of response, but eventually, after the murders, Charlie would move his family out to the desert, allowing them to think that the Beatles could join them there. But the two most important songs on the album, according to Charlie, were Revolution 9, a sound collage which Charlie interpreted as an audio depiction of the coming race war, and, of course, Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter was the name of a roller coaster in England, but Charlie didn't know that. He told his followers that Helter Skelter was the name of the coming apocalypse. When black men rose up against white, Charlie said, the family would go out into the desert where they'd find the bottomless pit, a hole in the ground, which Charlie said would lead them to an underground city where they could hide out for the duration of the war. The thing about black men, Charlie said, was that they would be able to overcome white men through sheer brute force, but once the planet was theirs, they'd be too stupid to know what to do with it. So at that point, the family could re-emerge from the hole in the ground, enslave the black men, and the planet would belong to them, and Charlie could take his rightful throne as the king of men. This was one reason why it was so important that everyone in the family be willing to have unprotected sex with anyone Charlie told them to, and only people Charlie told them to, so that they would be able to repopulate the Earth with only their kind. 
Whether or not Charlie even believed all of this is unclear. But his followers truly did believe Charlie's prophecy. While Charlie made sure to isolate his family from most current events, he brought instances of racial tension and violence into his sermons, positing events like demonstrations by the Black Panthers as harbingers of the apocalypse. And he made sure to both tempt his followers with the promises of the fantastic things that could happen if they bought in, and also frighten them with threats of what would definitely happen if they strayed from the path he laid out. Several members of the family, particularly the girls, had come to believe that the elf and fairy games they played on the ranch weren't just games. Charlie told them that after years in the underground city, maybe even hundreds of years, which didn't matter because time didn't exist and they were all immortal, then eventually, wings would sprout out of their backs. But if they left the family before the revolution, the blacks wouldn't know they were special. And as white people, they would be enslaved or killed. And just because of the color of their skin... The White Album was released in November 1968. On New Year's Eve, Charlie announced to his followers that it was their mission to prepare for Helter Skelter. By February 1969, Spawn Ranch, after decades as a Western movie set, now served as the backdrop for a new kind of equally contrived genre drama as Charles Manson put his family to work preparing for war. Charlie put them through the paces of quote-unquote desert survival courses. He'd deprive them of water for days on end. He taught them how to walk through sand, supposedly without leaving tracks. He made sure every family member had their own knife, and in order to break them of their fear, Charlie would make various girls stand straight against a wall while he threw knives just above and around their heads and faces. The family started trading the stolen and donated cars they were always fixing up for guns and dune buggies that they could use to get around the desert. The girls kept busy lining the dune buggies with fur and making clothes out of animal hides. New inductee Barbara Hoyt saw this activity and thought, Wow, this is fun. It's like camping. Hoyt wasn't totally insane to think it was all so innocent. It's important to note that at this point, Charlie wasn't telling his family that their mission was to kill. They were collecting knives and guns solely for the purpose of self-defense. He was still telling everyone that it was the black people who were going to do all the killing. He prophesied that one night, a crew of rocky raccoons were going to drive up from Watts to Bel Air invade some rich guy's house and kill everyone in it, writing messages on the walls in the victim's blood. That's how Helter Skelter was going to start, Charlie said. That would be the family's sign that it was time to disappear into the desert, he said. But preparations for the apocalypse cost money. And as the family's funds ran low... Charlie's old criminal instincts kicked in. 
he tried and failed to pimp out some of his girls for cash or get them signed up working at a strip club. But they're all worse for wear after months living without access to regular showers, and only sexy Sadie Susan Atkins had anything like the voluptuous body required by topless clubs. They then tried to open their own club. They fixed up a building on the ranch, painting murals on the walls depicting Helter Skelter, and Charlie would play his music while the girls go-go danced. But within a few days, police shut the place down for operating without a permit, costing George Spawn $1,500 in fines. Now desperate for cash, for his own purposes and to pay back old Mr. Spawn, Charlie figured it was time to sell some drugs. But to do that, he had to get in league with some bikers. Charlie was acquainted with the straight Satans, a sub-Hells Angels bikers gang whose members mostly had straight jobs and only participated in the biker gang on the weekends. The gang's treasurer, Danny DiCarlo, started living on the ranch more or less full-time because his wife was a drag and Manson's girls were happy to frolic with the guy they nicknamed Donkey. DiCarlo started negotiating drug deals that were mutually beneficial to the straight Satans and the Manson family. On the occasions when the bikers didn't make money, they at least got free sex with any Manson girls of their choosing, although usually they chose Leslie Van Houten and the now 15-year-old Ruth Ann. The straight Satans were never full-fledged members of the Manson family, but they did share some of Charlie's beliefs, particularly racism. This was good by Charlie. What wasn't so good with him was that the bikers also shared their drugs with the girls, and their drugs were often harder than LSD and pot. Susan, who had been so strung out when Charlie found her in San Francisco, got way into the straight Satan's speed. As nutty as this helter-skelter stuff was, Charlie still wasn't talking about murder. With the exception of the occasional altercation like the Wendy Buckley beating, Manson wasn't hurting anyone. Yet. Except for the kids he had brainwashed and enslaved, and they all thought they were there of their own volition. But even amongst those kids, there were inklings that Charlie was neither infallible nor harmless. Tex Watson, Manson's number one deputy, left the ranch for a while amidst the preparations for Helter Skelter, having decided that Charlie's trip was getting too far out for him. But after a while of bumming around L.A., trying to sell drugs, Watson didn't know what to do with himself. And so he came back, and Manson took him in with open arms. A little while later, a family member named Paul Watkins found himself in the unenviable position of having to deliver to Charlie bad news. Manson lunged at Watkins and started choking him. Watkins felt his breath leave him, and he really thought he was going to die. He gave up. And then Charlie let go. Watkins decided that the only way to deal with Charlie at his darkest was to submit. But in doing so, you had to acknowledge that Charlie's preaching about love was bullshit. That in fact, as Watkins put it, quote, death is Charlie's trip. Watkins was not the only one who came to this realization. 
Even after the Beach Boys betrayal, a regular visitor at Spawn Ranch was a friend of Dennis Wilson's, Greg Jacobson, who enjoyed hanging out with the girls and who was keen on making a movie about Charlie and his family. Jacobson really wanted to help Manson, and he probably could have made him some kind of star, but Manson screwed it up. One day, in response to one of Charlie's pronouncements, Greg laughed and said, You're full of shit. In a second, Charlie pulled out a handgun and pointed it at Jacobson's head. What would you do if I pulled the trigger? Charlie asked. Jacobson managed to keep his cool. He said, I guess I'd be dead. Charlie put the gun away and acted like nothing had happened, proving Watkins' theory that acquiescence was the best defense. But Jacobson lost admiration for Charlie after that. He realized that Charlie's main thing, as he put it, wasn't love. It was fear. Next week, we'll rewind a little bit to tell the story of a visitor to Spawn Ranch with major old Hollywood credentials who changed everything. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Nate DeMeo, who played Charles Manson. You can find Nate's excellent history podcast, The Memory Palace, at thememorypalace.us. For more information about this episode and other episodes, go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com or follow us on Twitter at remember this pod. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can rate and review us on iTunes and please subscribe to us there and or on your podcatcher of choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Where are they not?